Well, thank you. Our next panel will be about the Immigration Act of 1965, its causes and effects. Uh, moderating this panel will be Philip E. Wolgan, who is the Associate Director of the Immigration Policy Team at the Center for American Progress. Philip has directed uh, reports on a range of subjects related to immigrants in America, from studies on the daily lives of the undocumented through the Documenting the Undocumented series, to producing the first of its kind analysis of the 2012 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, to pushing back against E-Verify, a cause that is very dear to my heart. We have a lot of personal stories of being involved in uh, Hill briefings where we are um, uh, challenged very uh, vociferously by uh, certain staffers, but it all turned out okay because E-Verify is not mandated yet. A native of New Jersey, Philip earned his MA and PhD in American history from the University of uh, California at Berkeley, where his PhD was actually on this topic of the Immigration Act of 1965, and his BA from New York University. So without any further ado, Philip Wolgan. All right, thank you so much, Alex, and thank you to all of you for being here and for Cato for having us. I want to start by introducing this panel with just a little bit of background on the 1965 Act itself, which is otherwise known as the Hart-Seller Act after its principal sponsors, Senator Philip Hart and Representative Manny Seller. So as you've heard from Congressman Gallego, from the 1920s until 1965, immigrant admissions in the U.S. were governed by the National Origins Quota System. The system privileged immigrants from Northern and Western Europe, discriminated against those from Southern and Eastern Europe, and excluded non-white immigrants completely. Legislators spent the post-World War II years tinkering around the margins of the quota system before finally doing away with them for good in the 1965 Act. And in their place, policymakers chose a system of admissions that privileged family reunification first and foremost, and placed a lesser emphasis on labor migration. And that system still largely governs immigrant admissions to the US today. Probably the most well-known effect of the 1965 Act is that it opened the doors to immigration from around the globe, particularly immigrants from Asia who had been previously excluded. To put this in perspective, the 1.4 million Asian immigrants who gained permanent residency in the 1970s represented a tenfold increase from those that had come in the 1950s. So in many ways, this legislation, the 1965 Act, is a part and parcel of the civil rights era in which it was passed, coming just one year after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the same year as the Voting Rights Act. Legislators in 1965 also imposed limits on immigration from any single country as a way to ensure equality among the nations. But by forcing equality in this way, the bill chose to treat countries as different as Belgium and China as if they were equal in either population size or emigration needs. And these per-country caps, which started in 1965, are one of the prime reasons why immigrants from China, India, Philippines, and Mexico have some of the longest waiting times and backlogs to get permanent visas to the US. So in many ways today, we're still grappling with the policy choices that we made in 1965. And yet, in signing the bill into law, President Lyndon Johnson said of the act that it was, quote, not a revolutionary bill, given just how much the demographics and numbers of immigrants changed after the act. Scholars have really spent the last 50 years debating whether or not policymakers either understood or intended the changes that came after Hart-Seller passed. And while most people think of the ending of national origins and the opening of the doors as the major consequence of the 1965 act, as our previous questioner pointed out, the bill also significantly reshaped immigration from the Americas. For the first time in 1965, legislators placed a numerical cap on immigration from the Western Hemisphere, which historian May Nye has pointed out represented a 40% reduction in previous immigration levels. And this cap, along with the ending of the temporary Bracero work program the year before, meant that it became far harder after 1965 for immigrants from Mexico and Central America to get legal visas to the US, even as demand for their labor continued. And so the bill helped to create the conditions for greater unauthorized immigration in the years after and the decades after 1965. So today we're gonna to be discussing the intended and unanticipated changes from the 1965 Act. Of course, as historians, when we talk about cause and effect, we have the benefit of hindsight. But as we consider the bill, I'd like us to remember that Hartzeller itself came out of 20 years of debate, discussion, and compromise among competing interest groups and legislators 
all of which came together to form this final bill. I think co-sponsor Manny Seller really put this best when he talked about these compromises and the final bill saying, I'm quoting here, if you want the rose, you must put up with the thorns. So as we look at what lessons Hart Seller can teach policymakers today, I'd like us to be mindful of the need to both learn from the past to, pa to, to craft better policy solutions today, while also understanding the inherent messiness that goes into getting any piece of legislation, certainly one as big as immigration, across the finish line. So with that, let me introduce our panelists. I'll introduce all three of them now, and then each will have about 15 minutes to speak, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. Richard Boswell is professor of law and associate dean for global programs at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Professor Boswell has written extensively in the field of immigration law and is the author of 10 books and more than 15 articles. His current scholarly work involves a comparative study of immigration laws of more than seven countries covering a broad range of legal systems, and he holds a JD from the George Washington University National Law Center. Mark Hugo Lopez is director of Hispanic research at the Pew Research Center. He studies the attitudes and opinions of Latinos, Hispanic views of identity, the political engagement of Latinos in the nation's elections, and Latino youth. He also coordinates the Center's National Survey of Latinos and is the author of reports about the Hispanic electorate and Hispanic identity and immigration. He holds a PhD in economics from Princeton University and, like myself, is also a Cal Bear. Finally, Erica Lee is the granddaughter of Chinese immigrants who entered the United States through both Angel Island and Ellis Island. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. That's three bears on one panel. She teaches history at the University of Minnesota, where she is the Rudolph J. Vukoli Chair in Immigration History and Director of the Immigration History Research Center. So please join me in welcoming our panelists. Professor Boswell. I have a power, okay, good. I wasn't sure how this was gonna work, um, but I see this and I have buttons here, right? Okay, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to, uh, to speak to you. And um, what I would like to do um, first is, um, in, in talking here, is to, um, my purpose is to give you some very background leading up to the 65 Act. I'm going to try to keep my comments very brief and try to paint with a broad brush so that we can have more time um, for, the, for the, the other panelists to make their presentations and also for you all to uh, be able to ask questions. Uh, the first observation that I w would want to make um, as we look at this is uh, there's a doctrine called the plenary power doctrine. I'm not speaking here as a political scientist, historian. Uh, or in any other capacity. I'm a lawyer, so I'm looking at this in a very di in a, in a different way. The plenary power doctrine is what gives the, the authority to, um, to Congress to basically do whatever in the world it wants to do um, because it's, not, it's really not restrained by the Constitution and how it sets up limits on, on, um, with respect to immigration. And, and I think that this explains some of the craziness of, and, and, I, and the difficulties of of reaching reform is because um, you can have statutes that would be uh, um, would have racial and ideological um, ex exclusionary provisions that would otherwise would never would, would not be allowed in other areas of the law. So it allows for arbitrariness on the part of Congress. Uh, it can basically do whatever it wants, um, and that's why you see in our you'll see as we go through this the um, statutes that barred Asians from being able to come into the United States. The other thing, the, the second point that I have here is about the um, severe, um, that notwithstanding the fact that prior to um, any of this uh, legislation in 65 or even le in, in the time leading up to uh, the 65 uh, enactments, that there were many severe state law restrictions in, um, that, that were being imposed. And you see, when you start looking at the constitutional cases that were coming up from the 1800s, all the way through into early 1900s, there are lots of cases involving state law restrictions. And so there are a lot of impediments, even though uh, the, the general perspective is that we were open. We were, not we were open in a way, but there were severe state law restrictions. And also in the lead up uh, to any immigration changes that were passed by Congress, there were always strong political divisions. So the divisions that we see today are not so unusual. 
Um, and then the, the last point that I wanted to make here with, on, that's on this slide is that one of the hallmarks of our of, of major immigration legislation is that they get vetoed by the president. Uh, and then you have the Congress that overrides the veto. You see that in, the, um, in, in some of the laws that preceded the 65 Act. And then in the 1952 Immigration Act, um, there, there were vetoes. Uh, the, the, that, those laws were, were both vetoed, and Congress overrode those vetoes. So I'm not sure if this is showing up. Oh, yeah, the legal landscape. Um, so, so even though you have um, legislation that gets enacted, um, there is still a lot of hostility. And sometimes the hostility towards migrants um, and racial hostilities as well um, create impediments uh, and disincentives to, to migrate. And so uh, when you reflect today on the, ki the kind of climate that we have and the discussions that we have in the political arena, those have a major impact on who on who comes. People don't like coming if they're, they can go someplace else where life is going to be more hospitable. Um, and, that, and then the, the other point here is that racial exclusion has been a, been a constant theme throughout the immigration laws. And I think that some of the things that you see even today um, touch on race. Um, I'm going to move a little bit faster here. Um, because I've, ta I've talked about the, 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 the uh, extensive regimen of state laws that attempted to uh, restrict the, uh, the, the rights of non-citizens. So I'm going to really start with the, um, at the turn of the century, starting at 1907. And um, this was a period of, this is really more migration proportion to the size of our population than we're seeing today. Um, in 1907, uh, the Dillingham Commission was, was created, and the purpose of the Dillingham Commission, um, and our historians can tell us more about it, but from the perspective of the, of the legal scholar, is that it provided really a, 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 a significant theoretical, not theoretical, but um, basis to, to impose restrictive measures, which we're going to follow later on. Um, migration during this time was very high. Um, primarily from southern and eastern Europe, and this purpose of the commission was really to to build the framework for what eventually came to pass in 1917, which was the enactment of the very uh, of the first quota system that we had, and that was passed over the veto of President McKinley. Um, so that's the first mark that I mentioned before about presidential vetoes. Some of the points that were, that, that were made in this particular legislation was the imposition of an alien tax of $8, which was quite a substantial amount of money during that time. Um, and then the beginning of the, ex the exclusionary provisions that we, now, that we see even in today's laws relating to persons with disabilities, people with health problems, criminal grounds of, of, of inadmissibility, the extension of what's called the Asiatic Bard Zone. Um, and the, liter the literacy tests that were, that were, that were being imposed. Um, then you have the, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but this is the, 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 the Anarchist Act, which is the, the beginning of ideological exclusion um, that you be begin to see. In 1921, you have the Quota Act, uh, which was also enacted during a time of great fear. And, and remember, when even when you look back at some of the other provisions, that you had other, it's like the political conditions, both domestically as well as internationally, are impacting on the legislation that is being drafted in Congress. So here you have a climate of fear in 1921 of larger scale migration, which was following World War I. Um, and then you have the imposition of a quota, which was of 3% of the nationals who were in the country at the time, based on the census of 1910 and then setting an overall worldwide cap of 350,000 people. In 1924, very soon after, uh, it made permanent the, 19, the, the provisions of the 1921 Act, um, but used the census of 1920 um, as, as, as the basis to, to do this. And limiting then the quota, quota was limiting it to 150,000 people, and then set up a non-quota category uh, for people who were spouses and children of US citizens. And Western Hemisphere migration at the time was not limited. Um, and it barred anyone 
who was ineligible for citizenship from being able to obtain status, permanent, any kind of permanent residency status, which in effect meant basically uh, that people who were Asian could not, could not come. And then as part of the same time you have uh, following that, there were other, there are other legislation that, was, that were enacted during the interim period, but um, I'm just highlighting these major points here. Then you have the Alien Registration Act of 1940 uh, as part of World War II, which was um, really going after um, excluding and uh, deporting subversives or people who had criminal convictions. Um, and this was where you had uh, the, the uh, moving of the functions of immigration uh, from the Department of Labor over to the Department of Justice. And then we look at the period which is following World War II uh, from 1945 to 1952. As you can see, I am moving very quickly towards 1965. Um, the War Brides Act that was enacted in 1945, which was designed to expedite the admission of you know, this is what happens after war. Soldiers go to other places. They establish relationships, and they marry. Well, the quota system created a problem for that. Um, but this would allow the more expeditious admission of people who were the spouses and minor children of service members of people who were honorably discharged. And then you begin to see in the next, uh, in the next provisions that were enacted, um, provisions that had to be enacted because uh, of the quota system that we had in place, which was you had refugees trying to come here, and so you had the Displaced Persons Act of 48 and 50, which, um, which would basically allow the, these people coming primarily from Europe and other parts of Europe um, that were, uh, would have great difficulty in being able to bring people. This legislation was called, I call it at least, the, immigrant, the, the Immigration Mortgaging Act. And the reason why I, I describe it as this is that the quote, what it did was it mortgaged the quota for, into the future. That is, those people who were able to come under the Displaced Persons Act, then it took away from the numbers of people who were able to come um, under, under, the, under the regular quota system. And then we have the embodiment of what I describe to, as today's immigration law, more so than anything else in terms of the overall structure of immigration law, which is the McCarran-Walter Act of 1952. Maybe in our Q&A, we'll be able to go into the, uh, the, the peculiarities of why, why you have somebody from, Arizona, uh, from, uh, from Nevada who is like the architect of the legislation, and we will also see that in the 1986 Act uh, later on, which is the senator from Wyoming. And, uh, and someone uh, from Kentucky who have a hard role to play and a major role to play in the enactment of the legislation. Um, so the, the 52 Act was the essence of current immigration law. And in there, you have uh, the adoption, the moving in and, and, and making and, and keeping in place the very restrictive legislation that we had from before. Um, and this also was enacted over the veto of uh, President Truman. Uh, and, and at the time, President Truman created what's called the Perlman Commission. And then the Perlman Commission um, really had a severe critique. And some of the language of the Perlman Commission you'll see coming up again when we get to the 1965 Act. Um, following that, you had President Eisenhower, who um, who tried to put in legislation. Nothing ever really happened. Um, you did manage to get the Refugee Relief Act of 53 uh, through there, but these were minor, minor, minor changes. And um, then you had the 1961, the enactment of legislation that would create some opening on Asian migration of about 2,000 people, so it wasn't that significant. Um, and part of, now we get to the 65 Act and, and some of the points that were raised um, previously. And I just want to highlight a couple of other, uh, other things that, because you, you're seeing there um, that there's a long road to this, to this Act and a period before of very severe restrictions. Um, but what you have here in 1965 is really this perfect storm that comes together. And one of them is, is that um, there's a changing political climate. This is post-World War II, um, and the US has 
has a very different role in the world. And one of the statements that you see from going back from Truman to Eisenhower to some of the arguments made by President Johnson were that it was making it very difficult for the United States on the international political forum to be able to argue that we were this country of immigrants, yet we were excluding people based on, 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 on race, and we had all these severe restrictions. So that law um, was enacted in part um, because of that, what was, what was going on in this country and also what was going on overseas. Um, and I think that the, the last point that I wanted to make here is that the Kennedy assassination plus what was going on in the civil rights movement, plus the tremendous acumen and ability of President, of President Johnson to twist arms and get votes in the, in the right, from the right places uh, enabled the, uh, this legislation to um, get enacted. And our panelists here are going to be talking more about what the 65 Act did and its future, and, um, and I will wait for the Q&A time to give my comments uh, to you. So thank you for much for this opportunity. Good morning. Um, do I need to make the selection here? Nope, nope, that's not me. I think we have the wrong PowerPoint up. We're waiting for the PowerPoint, and let me introduce myself. My name is Mark Lopez, and I'm the Director of Hispanic Research at the Pew Research Center. Um, just this week, we published a report looking at the demographic impact of post-1965 immigration on the nation's demographics since 1965 to today, but also looking forward one, uh, another 50 years to 2065. We also have a number of interactives that you might find very interesting, for example, showing where uh, who the nation's largest immigrant group is in each state. So there are some uh, uh, nice pieces to this particular piece of research, and I'm going to talk to you about the Hispanic side of this. Um, and I also want to say we paired this uh, analysis with some public opinion data, too. What do Americans think about immigration today? And do they want to see immigration increased or decreased? And I can talk a little bit about that, particularly in the question and answer session. Um, so let's talk a little bit about sort of what's been happening with regards to immigration to the United States. So as you know, the nation's immigration, immigrant population is around 40, 45 million people. Our estimate puts it at 45 million today. Now, of course, this is a much larger immigrant population than was the case in the early 20th century. Uh, but proportionately speaking, Speaking, we are nearing the record that we saw in the early in the in the late 19th and early 20th century. We're at about 13.7 percent of the U.S. population that is foreign-born. Our projections uh, uh, project that by 2065, 50 years from today, the U.S. will have about 78 million immigrants. Now, of course, projections are based on a number of assumptions, and our assumptions are based on sort of what's been happening today with immigration and some expectations about the future. Nonetheless, immigration has brought about 59 million people to the United States since 1965. Of course, not all of them have stayed. Some have gone home. Some have passed away. But 59 million people since 1965 have arrived in the United States, according to our estimates. 44.9 um, million are currently in the country. Um, one little side note. The United States remains the world's top magnet for immigrants in terms of absolute numbers. We have more immigrants than any other country in the world, and about one in five migrants worldwide are in the United States. I think that's important to note because we oftentimes worry about how we're competing against other countries in attracting immigrants. The United States is competing very well in attracting immigrants, and other countries are doing many things to change their systems to try to outdo ours in terms of attracting, for example, high-tech labor. But I think it's important to keep that in mind that the United States still remains the world's uh, uh, biggest, has the world's biggest immigrant population, it remains one of the biggest magnets, if not the biggest magnet, for immigrants. Now, if you take a look at sort of where immigrants are from, this chart shows you the three waves of migration to the United States. Now, the post-1965 I don't, I don't like to call it exactly a wave because I think there's a number of different things that are happening. But to compare it to the previous two big waves, you can see that for the most part, 
In the first wave, 14.3 million immigrants arrived in the United States over a 50-year period from 1840 to 1889. Most of those were from Ireland or from Germany. Those were the dominant countries, but it was largely Northern and Western European migration. In the second wave, which brought about 18.2 million people to the United States, and that occurred between 1890 to 1919, you'll see that it was largely a Southern European wave, Italian particularly, but other Southern and Eastern European too. This current group of immigrants, the post-1965 post immigration, is a much different one. As some folks have already noted, the change in the law that changed the uh, uh, quotas uh, that were tied to immigrant populations earlier in the 20th century really opened the door for immigration from around the world. Now, Latin America has been the main source of migration, and in fact, Mexicans alone have accounted for 30% of this 59 million people who have come to the United States. Um, the immigration from Asia, South and East Asia, has accounted for about 25% of this new 1965 post-immigration migration. Europe, only 12%. To give you a sense of this in another way, you can see here are the largest immigrant groups in each state in 1960. Notice Germany in the center of the country, Poland and Illinois, Sweden and Minnesota, Canada up here in the Northeast, and you see uh, the UK hmm, and Florida. I'm just going to say UK, Florida, um, and uh, Mexico along the border here, and Colorado, Russia, USSR. Now keep in mind that many of these immigrant populations were quite small. So we're talking about small numbers of people in places like Alabama. Alabama was not a large magnet for migrants. But among the migrants there, migrants from the UK were the largest single group of immigrants. What is it today? Today, this is what it looks like. And you can see that today, Mexico is the largest immigrant group in 33 of the nation states. Now, that's really quite striking. And this is probably going to change over the course of the decades because we've really seen a slowdown in migration from Mexico, uh, so much so that that's had an impact on Hispanic population demographics, which we'll get to in just a minute. But you can also see the diversity of countries that people are from. You can see China, for example, in Massachusetts. You see the Dominican Republic in New York. You see the Philippines in Alaska and Hawaii. Cuba and Florida, but as you can see, it is a diverse set of countries from where people are coming from today compared to just 1960. Um, if you want more, we have maps like this that go all the way back to 1850, if you want to see what it was like all the way back to 1850. Um, in terms of the racial and ethnic makeup of the country, this is one of the main findings from the report. We took a look at where the nation was in 1965 and where the nation actually is today. Those are the first two, those are the first two charts, I'm sorry, bars on the left side. You can see that the nation went from being 84% white to 62% white today. Hispanic went from 4% to 18%, for example. Um, what would have happened had there been no post-1965 immigration? The next set of bars show you what would have happened. The nation would have become more diverse because the nation was already somewhat diverse because of African-American, Hispanic, and Asian populations that were already here. But you could see that the population would have been 75% white versus 62% today. The Hispanic population would have gone from 4 to 8%, but that's way below the 18% that we actually have today. So you can see that the racial and ethnic makeup of the country has changed after 1965. Now, I want to also be very careful to not say that the 1965 law necessarily caused these changes. It just so happens that after 1965, there was a large migration to the United States. It was a racially and ethnically different migration from in the past, and that led to some of the racial and, and, and uh, demographic differences that we see today. <clears throat> so for Latinos, what does this mean? Well, this sort of shows you in absolute numbers what we actually observed in terms of Hispanic population growth. 57 million is where we are today, up from 8.1 million in 1965. And it also shows you where we would have been had there been no migration. But you can see that migration to the United States brought about 37 million immigrants plus their children and descendants uh, that contributed to Hispanic population growth. What will happen into the future? Immigration will continue to be important for Hispanics into the future. You can see that we'll go from 57 million today to a projected 107 million in 2065. But again, 
If there were no further immigration, the Hispanic population would only grow to 78 million. So why do we care about all of this? Well, one of the interesting things that's been happening with the Hispanic population is what's been driving its growth. In the 1970s, immigration, births in the United States of Hispanic parents were just about equally important in driving growth. In the 1980s, though, as immigration from Latin America started to surge, that accounted for more Hispanic population growth than US births. Same thing in the 90s. But in the 2000s, we've had a major reversal. Now it is births in the United States to Hispanics that matter more than the arrival of new immigrants. This has had implications for one of the key characteristics of the Hispanic population. We oftentimes think of Hispanics as being immigrants. And among Hispanic adults, about half are immigrants. But I want to point out that on that top line, the share of the Hispanic adult population that's foreign born is in decline. It's also in decline generally among Hispanics. In fact, the Hispanic population was never, at least not since 1980, never majority foreign born. We reached a peak of about 40% in 20,000, but now we're down to 35.2. And it's really US born young people, US born young Latinos, many of the children of immigrants, but many who are not, who are the main drivers now of Hispanic trends, population growth, et cetera. And to give you one example, if you take a look at the religious affiliations of Latinos, you'll find that the Catholic, the share that say they're Catholic is in decline. What's rising is the share who say they have no religious affiliation. And it's largely among young Latinos that this is happening because they look like other young Americans. About 28% of them will say they have no religious affiliation, which is about where most young Americans are. I want to close by showing you one of our public opinion results, which is how do Americans see different immigrants from different parts of the world? So we ask the question, the, what has been the impact of immigrants from, say, Asia on American society? And you can see that the view of Asian immigrants is really positive. 47% of Americans say the impact has been mostly positive. Another 39% say neither positive nor negative, and just 11% say mostly negative. Very similar pattern for European immigrants. African immigrants, half of Americans say neither positive nor negative. I think it's important to note, by the way, African immigration is on the rise. Uh, uh, in fact, so much so that the share of the black population in the United States as foreign born has doubled in the last 15 years. Um, Latin America and the Middle East, somewhat more negative. 26% um, of Americans say immigrants from Latin America have had a mostly positive impact on American society, but 37% say it's been mostly negative with the remainder somewhere in between. Something very similar for, the middle, for Middle Eastern immigrants as well. I look forward to all of your questions. That's only sort of a tip of the iceberg of some of the demographic changes that have happened in America and sort of what we're going to potentially see moving into the future. But I think there's a, a lot of rich uh, information here to discuss. And I look forward to all of your questions. And I hope that you get a chance to take a look at the report. Thank you. All right. Good morning. I want to also second um, Mark's plea that you take a look at this report because it is absolutely fascinating and has some amazing um, statistics and also infographics that are great in the classroom, so I've been using them a lot. I wanted to start, I don't know if you can see it, it's a little bit bright up here, but um, this is the photograph of President Johnson signing the bill, and it's taking place on Liberty Island, so under the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. This is a big deal. You know, with a helicopter, he brought all of the major actors in Congress, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, um, Lady Bird Johnson, the Kennedy brothers. They're here to sign this bill on the steps of the Statue of Liberty. And he's trying to make, send this message. This is a historic transformation in our uh, immigration law. It's writing a deep and historic uh, flaw, a racial injustice. And so as we're looking back at the legacy of the 1965 Immigration Act, we absolutely have to understand how important this law was in abolishing the national origins quotas. The national origins quotas under this system, only three countries received 70% of the immigrant visas. Those three countries were Ireland, Germany, and the UK. 
the quota system was, was vastly unequal. The, uh, Germany uh, received 51,000 visas versus Italy, which received over 3,000 visas. That was a dramatic decrease from, from before. The law abolished racial discrimination and national origin in the government's handing out of immigrant visas. So this is absolutely important. However, the other part of this law is that it's just complicated. I think all of us would say that. It's complicated. It opened up the doors to, do, to new immigrants, but it also placed some historic new restrictions on immigration from the Western Hemisphere. And it's that contradictory legacy um, that we're still focusing on today. So my task is to think about how this law affected Asian Americans before and after 1965. So the century of migration, 1830 to 1930, we know that 32 million European immigrants came, about 1 million both from Latin America and 1 million from Asia. They were extremely diverse, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, South Asian, Filipinos, uh, but their population was mostly stagnant because of the exclusion laws that we passed beginning in 1882 that barred Chinese laborers the uh, agreements with Japan that barred Japanese and Korean laborers. By 1935, we had essentially excluded almost every Asian immigrant group. Just a little bit of family background. My great-great-great-grandfather came to mine gold in the California gold rush in 1854, so one of the very first Chinese to come to the United States during that mass migration. But for three generations, our family remained separated across the Pacific Ocean because of the exclusion laws. So in essence, I'm still just third generation because it wasn't until the 1920s that my grandparents could come over and stay. So that by 1960, we still have just around a million Asian Americans in the country, just 1% of the total population. So again, they're extremely diverse. There's Korean refugees, Japanese immigrants, immigrants from South Asia who are mostly Sikh, but also Muslim and Hindu, Chinese immigrants, and Filipinos. They helped to build America. Of course, the Chinese were 90% of the railroad force that built the Transcontinental Railroad. They turned the West into the agricultural empire that it is, both in Hawaii and California. But they also faced an enormously active and violent uh, anti-Asian movement that first started with the Chinese, this idea that Chinese were inassimilable foreigners, uh, coolies who were taking away jobs from white workers, um, less than human, uh, not fit to be citizens. It started with the Chinese. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882. But by the 19-teens and 1920s, that anti-Asian sentiment had become extended to all other Asian immigrant groups, focusing on South Asians, and then on um, part of this really global concern about uh, the rise of Asia, the rise of Africa, the rise of Latin America, um, the so-called rising tide of color. This book, published by Lothrop Stoddard in 1921, became essentially the Bible for US politicians who were thinking about how to restrict immigration. One of the results is the institutionalization of immigration bureaucracies, uh, in investigations, interrogations, detention centers, immigration raids and deportations, and undocumented immigration. When we think about undocumented immigration, we, today we particularly think about immigration from Latin America and Mexico, but the first undocumented immigrants in the United States were Chinese immigrants who had been banned by the exclusion laws from coming into the United States. So this is the Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco, really the first detention center for immigrants. Unlike Ellis Island, which was mostly a processing center, Angel Island was focused on uh, interrogating and detaining Asian immigrants, intensive interrogations that would last for days, uh, a detention center that was crowded and unsanitary where Chinese were kept 23 out of 24 hours of the day, humiliating medical examinations. And also the surveillance of immigrants in the United States. This is from a immigration officer's logbook in Downeyville, California, where he's essentially keeping track of all of the Chinese in his town with physical characteristics, their height, their, uh, their name, any uh, physical marks. We also have 
the first debates over birthright citizenship, uh, an issue that has come into the public uh, sphere more recently with um, President, uh, sorry, presidential candidate Donald Trump's um, <laughs> suggestions about um, um, ending birthright citizenship. Wang Kimark was a Chinese American citizen born in the United States to parents who could not become naturalized citizens because our immigration law, our naturalization laws prevented um, all Asians from becoming naturalized citizens until 1952. Uh, Wang Kimark went on a trip to China to visit his parents, returned back to the United States. He was barred re-entry into the United States in a test case to examine birthright citizenship for Chinese Americans. He appealed the case to the federal district court. Uh, the court um, ruled in his favor, but the government appealed, so he took it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all persons under the 14th Amendment, all persons born in the United States are citizens thereof, regardless of the status of their parents. This is the case that is still legal precedence in the United States since 1898. However, Wong Kim Ark still had to go through all of those investigations and interrogations every time he entered and re-entered the United States. And in 1931, he decided to retire and he went to China and he never came back to the United States. By World War II, we had um, a peak of anti-Asian sentiment that really uh, flourished after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. This idea that, again, Asians were inassimilable foreigners, not loyal to the United States, were waiting for the signal from home so that they could wreak havoc uh, on the United States and were a national security threat. This is a cartoon by, by Dr. Seuss. Um, so widespread, widespread belief, not, not just some extreme um, uh, understandings. And during World War II, we had, of course, the incarceration of 120,000 Japanese Americans, two-thirds of them U.S. citizens, often uh, minor children. But at the same time, there's lots of other things happening. Ideas about race are changing during World War II. Our international relations are also changing, and this sets up the stage for why we have changes in immigration policy. We are now allies with China, India, and the Philippines. And after all of those decades of anti-Asian sentiments and treating all of those different Asian groups as one group, now the United States has to uh, support this idea that actually there are some groups that might be our friends and that we might want to be letting into the country. And how can we go to China and say, you are our ally, but we actually don't want any of your, your people to come to the United States. So this helpful article by Time Magazine, December 22nd from 1941, explains how to tell your friends, your Chinese friends, from the Japs. And there's some pretty interesting but also ludicrous suggestions here. 1943, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who's the wife of Nationalist Leader uh, General Chiang Kai-shek, comes to the White House, visits with Eleanor Roosevelt, speaks to Congress. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the repeal of the Chinese exclusion laws. This is historic in that it does end, officially end, um, the exclusion acts. However, Chinese immigration is essentially still closed. The quota for China, our ally, is just 105 people. Our uh, expansion into Asia helps, helps to open up the doors to new immigration in, by the 1950s. Again, a step towards the changes that we'd see in 1965. When US forces go to Japan and Korea, some of our military personnel married um, Japanese and Korean women. War brides started coming over after the 1940s. We also began to understand the plight of Korean uh, uh, orphans and Korean adoption. International transracial adoption begins in the 1950s as well. At home, civil rights uh, changes are allowing the very first uh, Asian American to become elected to Congress. This is Dalip Singh Sand from, from California. But our major changes happen in the Asian American population only after the 1965 Immigration Act, which abolishes those national origins quotas and allows uh, immigration from Asia to, to enter more freely. So we see some of the changes. It's both about numbers, but also about diversity. We have Asian Americans making up just 1% of the total US population. Japanese Americans were the dominant group. 
By 2010, because those immigration patterns has changed, Japanese Americans are a much smaller group, but we have a greater diversity from China, India, the Philippines, Korea, Vietnam, and smaller numbers of Japan. Just recently, new census reports indicated that China uh, is sending, or Chinese are the single largest group of, of immigrants entering the United States from today, um, but also Indians are close behind. They're coming through two main pathways, the Family Reunification Pathway in the 1965 Act, and also uh, employment and professional skills, so that we know that Asians um, make up about three quarters of the new H-1B visa holders. Other changes in the civil rights movement um, allowed for uh, an Asian American identity to, to flourish, coalitions across and amongst different ethnic groups, um, uh, folks being involved in labor rights, LGBT rights, uh, women's rights, and, and civil rights movement. The last major change has been the arrival of 1.2 million refugees from Southeast Asia. When we're thinking about how the United States can respond to the refugee crisis in Europe, it's instructive to remember that from April to December of 1975, we evacuated and brought in 130,000 uh, southern Vietnamese into the United States. So what does it look like today? Some handy statistics from the Pew Center. 19.5 um, million Asian Americans, the fastest growing group in the country uh, from 2000 to 2010. They're expanding um, not just along the coast, but also throughout the United States in places that had, had very few uh, Asian immigrants before. The public attitudes about Asian Americans are such that they are the tiger nation. They're the model minority. Uh, they allegedly are successful economically, academically, um, and are on the rise. This is just one piece of the picture. There are many others who remain in working class conditions, uh, few English proficiency, um, generational poverty, especially those who come from refugee backgrounds. At the same time, we've seen a rise in Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment. So some Asian Americans, Muslim or not, are um, the victims of hate crimes that we've seen, especially after 9-11, a growth of 1,600%. And another statistic that we don't see is that the unauthorized immigrant population for Asian immigrants is the fastest growing group. About 11% of the undocumented immigration um, population are Asian immigrants. And with the rise of China and with concerns about um, China and India's economy, we may see a resurgence of anti-Asian sentiment. Wen Ho Lee is the Chinese-American scientist in 1999 who was accused of, falsely accused of espionage with China and kept in solitary confinement for 200 days. Just two weeks ago, there were other, two other Chinese-American scientists who were also falsely accused of espionage. Is it a trend for the future? So in some, Asian-Americans are extremely diverse. It represents a population that is now seven generations in this country, as well as newly arrived uh, refugees and uh, international students, those who are at the top of and CEOs of some of our leading companies, as well as still um, living in poverty for a few generations. It's this diversity that we're going to have to track and see what happens in the next 50 years as we understand the full consequences of our immigration laws. Thank you very much. Open it up to questions now. So we have people coming around with microphones, so please wait till you're called on. And then uh, once you get the microphone, please just announce your name and affiliation before you give your question. I think we can start with the woman right here in the middle. My name is Lee Yang. Thanks for your presentation. Uh, I understand there's a lot of hate crime against minorities. Um, it's not just because of uh, the proper language barrier, but also social cultural differences. And because of the thing that value to uh, American people and uh, to, uh, they say, Asian people are different. And they now, America, they don't really study Confucius. And they don't even have that material, really, in school or probably very few in the library. 
And uh, the system in America is a user recommendation rather than examination. And now they are rather, rather to propaganda against the test because the test is one more objective rather than recommendation. Especially if you are talking about politician and you are talking about democracy, now where they have a little type of civic political club or group, they are basically they are networked and they recommend their own people. So they make American system very poor. And I was just wondering by hate crime and by value system difference, do we have this type of studies and how minorities are victimized under this type of uh, uh, unjust system? Okay, thank you. And I think we'll collect a few questions and then let our panelists answer them. And I think we have a question up there in the left. Eyal um, Moses. Uh, my question is uh, for Mark Lopez. You've talked about the big changes in Hispanic immigration since 1965. You haven't really talked about what effect specifically you think the Immigration Act had on these changes. And, and I, was, I was wondering if, if you would comment on that. Great. And let's take one more question from the gentleman in the back. Hi, my name is Shang Yu Yang. I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute, and I work for the immigration policy analyst, Alex. Uh, so uh, yesterday, I was reading the Pew Research, and uh, I found something very interesting because uh, um, so there there was a graph uh, indicating uh, the the ratio uh, compensation of the uh, new immigrants to the United States, and uh, I was finding the sources, and I was directed to the USIS uh, yearbook of uh, 2013, but I didn't find anything on that about uh, the racial conversations because um, that whole report is it's only um, about uh, the immigrants' last country of residence. So um, could you please uh, indicate where do you find this you know, data, please? Thanks. Great. Okay, these are good questions, and I'm going to let all of our panelists, maybe we'll start with Mark, and then we can go down, let you all respond. Okay, sure. Um, first, in answer to your question about the Immigration Act. So I was trying to be very careful to note that the Immigration Act did make some changes to the way in which people could come to the United States. But we didn't see it all of a sudden, we did not all of a sudden see a huge surge of people coming to the U.S. It took some time for this 59 million number to really sort of surge in the 80s and 90s, et cetera. So to draw a direct causal link, it's hard for me to say this caused that. But I do think one thing that's important to note is that we haven't talked about the characteristics of Mexican immigration particularly. Um, Mexican immigrants, we estimate that about uh, 16, 17 million Mexicans have come to the United States since 1965. Many of those people, almost about half, are, uh, came here without authorization. So they came here illegally. Now, why all of a sudden the surge in unauthorized Mexican immigration particularly? Well, prior to the 1965, Act, um, Latin, uh, West, the Western Hemisphere, particularly, as some people have talked about, didn't have the same origin quotas, restrictions, et cetera, that were in place for, say, Asia and Africa. So it was actually uh, uh, illegal for some legal for somebody from Latin America to come to the United States. On top of that, in the 1950s, the United States had the Bracero Program, which brought Mexican workers to the United States, starting in World War II, but ended in 1964. It brought them to the United States to work here. With that program's elimination and then some quotas placed on the Western Hemisphere with the 1965 law, or at least some limits, you found Mexican unauthorized immigration starting to rise, particularly in the 1980s. But I don't want to draw any causal impacts because the world has seen more migration just generally in the post-1965 era. It may be partly due to our laws, and maybe due to other laws, maybe due to other circumstances around the world. So it's really hard to sort of draw a causal link. But you're absolutely right that there are some other things that may have played a role, particularly in driving Mexican immigration post-1965. In answer to your question, uh, I would say uh, if, you, if you can, it may be better for you to send me an email so with a particular chart, and then we can have our, the researcher who produced that get in touch with you. I think that what the difference may be here is that that researcher took that data, those countries, and then classified them according to regions. And then that sort of led to this analysis that he did, but it also may be 
something that we, not have, we may not have included enough information for you, so let me take a look. But if you want to um, come up to me, I'll give you my card. Wonderful. Um, Professor Boswell, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, a couple of comments. Um, and, the, and, the, and the biggest one is that we, when we're looking at migration, I think we have to look at it in terms of uh, why are people coming, what's pushing them out, and what's attracting them here. And, and the countries of lar larger numbers of migration are usually connected to countries that we have had long-standing relationships with. There's no, there's no coincidence that a lar large number of Filipinos, for example, might be coming here because they actually were citizens of the United States for a long time. Uh, it's no coincidence that people from Korea might be coming here because we, had, we, we were there as, as a military force, or that even Vietnamese would be, be, be coming here. Um, and then you've got uh, civil wars going on in Central America, which pushed a lot of people out and got them to, to, to come to the U.S. So, so I think as we, as we think about this, um, and, and we, we need to think about it in terms of what's pushing people out, why are they coming, what's the level of accommodation that we can give, and how, how, much, how many people we can absorb um, in, 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 at any reasonable pace. And I think that, that's one way to kind of like try to look at this, because I don't attribute, um, I, I'm not sure how much to attribute to the 65 Act, because for Mexicans, for example, it did actually, it, it, was, it, was, more, it was easier for them before than it was afterwards, um, you, because of the quota restrictions. And the, there are long, long waits right now for someone married to a permanent resident who's from Mexico. It's probably about eight or nine years to be able to get a visa. Excellent. So, and, you know, the other consequence of the 65 Act is because it did make it harder for immigrants from the Western Hemisphere, from Latin America and Mexico to come and then contributed to a surge in undocumented immigration. It has increased the debates over immigration, has increased the, our response to so the border security, the record numbers of deportations that we've seen in the past uh, few years as well. So, you know, one takeaway about the legacies of the Immigration Act of 1965 is that it's complicated. It's contradictory and it's, it's complicated. Um, in terms of your question about, I think it's about the rise in hate crimes, and that's something that we have seen um, since the 1970s and 80s. And I'll speak specifically for the Asian American population. One of the things that I think distinguishes Asian American um, contemporary issues from perhaps other groups is that regardless of how long uh, someone has been in this country or re regardless of how long an, the Asian American population has been part of the United States, they are for better or for worse still often tied to Asia. And so depending on who we're friends with or who we're quote unquote enemies with or maybe frenemies with, um, Asian Americans reap those repercussions. So during a, an increase in anti-Japanese sentiment in the 1980s when there was concern over economic, um, economic wars with Japan, Asian Americans uh, felt the brunt of that, um, of, of that anxiety. Similarly, after 9-11, uh, Sikh Americans, whether they're, it's, who are not Muslim, are, are facing, um, are being the targets of anti-Muslim sentiment. So uh, for Asian Americans, the, the um, number of hate crimes and violence has actually um, increased. Excellent. All right. So in the last minute or two, I think I'm going to use my moderator's prerogative to ask one last question to our panelists. And I'll give you each maybe 30 seconds to answer this question. So since this entire conference is about learning the lessons from 1965 to today, if you had one takeaway that you would want policymakers debating immigration today to take away from the 1965 Act, what would it be? Oh. Mark, I can start with you. Um, well, the Pew Research Center is nonpartisan and non-advocacy, so it's hard for me to make any sort of uh, uh, recommendations here. But I do think it's interesting to note how the nation, this, this current group of immigrants from post-1965, how it's changing. Uh, it's now not necessarily so much about Latin America. Unauthorized immigration seems to have slowed. And it seems that legal immigration, particularly people coming here to study and particularly people coming here to work, might be a, an important part of the story to look at. Maybe we need to pay more attention or focus more on the legal side of immigration at the moment, even though most of the debate is about securing the border and unauthorized immigration. Excellent. All right. Professor Basel. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll use my prerogative. 
and, 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 I'll, and I'll point out one other thing, because I'm not able to answer this question. Uh, and that is that it's about the decision makers. The decision makers on everyone who comes to the United States is a consular officer. And the consular officers have their own biases. And what happens is that, notwithstanding the elimination of racial uh, uh, quotas and exclusions and all the other things, the decision makers on who gets to come in is made by a line officer at the a State Department officer who's making a determination, and he's coupled with that, there are incredibly exclusionary laws so that Asian migrants are not gonna be able to come because they're public charges. They're not gonna come because of this or that. Or people from Africa aren't gonna come because they're not gonna be able to ever get a visa to come here. Um, they're never gonna have a family that's gonna be here to petition for them. So um, that's the last point that I wanted to make. Great, all right. It's pretty clear uh, when we study the congressional debates and the um, predictions that lawmakers were trying to make in 1965 as they were passing this uh, debating and then passing the law that they really didn't know what they were doing. And so my <laughs> suggestion is that as, we're, as, as the next generation of lawmakers tries to create a more flexible immigration policy, that they make sure they have the right data uh, to work with and, and um, really create some lasting uh, laws that can help serve us in the future. Well, wonderful. I think that's an excellent point to end on. So thank you all so much. Let's thank our panelists.